Ah, uh, what a week. It's still Friday. I guess WWDC is still going on, but uh, I guess it's, you know, it's officially sort of over in the sense Fridays, that all the... Yeah. Friday's normally the day. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's all rerun sessions, right, right, at the show. And it's normally the day where people start filtering out of town, you know? It's right. like the last, like the Friday drinking crowd is quite a bit thinner than the Thursday night drinking crowd. Right. <laughs> I think I've gone home on Friday most of the last few years um, mm-hmm. because my wife comes with me now and she gets the shits of it a lot sooner than I do. <laughs> yeah. I always liked, like in the old days when I would come out by myself, I actually liked the Friday night when like most, a lot of people were gone or people left during the day and the local Californians, you know, could just drive or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it was just like a nice quiet night and a dinner where you didn't have to try to find, Ooh, where can we find a table for 11? <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And it was like, Oh, this is nice. And then you could relax and go home on Saturday and it was normal. Yeah. But, yeah. but now we're all, I'm already home. <laughs> <laughs> long, long journey. Back to the, the other, old, uh, the home, other thing homestead. that I was grossly wrong about is I thought, well, since this will be remote and I'll be at home the whole time, even if I'm busy and I have a show and I did have a show and it did <laughs> occupy some time, I thought, well, this year I'll get to watch a lot of the sessions during the week. <laughs> I have yeah, watched no. no sessions. <laughs> yeah. The only sessions I've watched are clips on Twitter. And I thought the same thing. And it, it's... Not only did I not get to watch sessions, I felt this was way more hectic than yes. it was actually being there. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the same thing too. Um, at a very high level, I would just like to start with the App Store stuff because yeah. it broke before WWDC and you and this is why I thought, well, let's talk to let's talk to old our old friend Panzer because Phil Schiller uh, talked to you. And you had an interview, and they, you know, tried to. I'm not gonna say they tried to clean it up, but they tried to deal with it. You know, there was mm-hmm. this controversy that was started with the Basecamp's new Hey app being rejected from the store, and mm-hmm. f- for doing what seemed, you know, and again, we could easily derail this <laughs> this entire show, right? <laughs> but let me see if I can summarize it very quickly. Hey is an email the service and app. All rolled into one, and the idea is you pay them a hundred dollars a year, and you get a your name at hey dot com, and then once you have that, you could download their app for other you know for iPhone or for Android uh, or Mac or whatever, and then you log in, and then you can use the app. And if you just download the app and you don't have a Hey account yet, it it has the Netflix effect, which is my catch-all term for you download the app and open it, and it has a username and password field and a uh, terms of service link or something like that, and that's about mm-hmm. it. <laughs> because mm-hmm. right. and, and they got rejected for that, and that's how Basecamp works, and that's how dozens and dozens and dozens of software-as-a-service type apps work, and things that aren't even software-as-a-service, you know, like you, you buy like a Nest app or something like that, you know, uh, for your Nest thermostat. Well, if you don't have a Nest thermostat, the Nest app doesn't do anything because what can it do? Mm-hmm. Right. So they got they got rejected. They kind of, uh, I think, in a very clever way, played this up in such a way that it it led to hundreds of accusations that they did this on purpose as a publicity stunt. Mm-hmm. 
which is really not the case. And like they've said, I've seen uh, DHH and Jason Fried respond to people on Twitter and they're like, okay, let's just go with this for a second. Your theory that we did this on purpose requires us to have two plants in the app store, one who approved our initial version and then a second one to reject it. Our, our like <laughs> bug fix update. Like right. how would that work exactly? Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Phil Schiller talked to you at TechCrunch, mm-hmm. uh, and it did not, it, it was interesting. It was, it wasn't, you know, meaningless, but in some ways, what he said actually generated more controversy. Yeah. I mean, look, the, at, at that point in time, it seems like, you know, we could talk about it. Obviously, what they announced at the um, at the show, or 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 sort of during after the keynote, uh, <laughs> very casually announced some things about the App Store changing uh, in some ways. But at the time that I had my interview, you know, they had they had sent this letter, and I guess they sent it day and date with the press um, to to Basecamp. Um, and the letter, you know, outlined is essentially an app store rejection letter, but public, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, because they sent it to press, and I, I guess because of the timing that they sent it to the press, they sent it to uh, Basecamp, and and they said that uh, they got it only after they'd already seen it published uh, publicly. I think they were trying to avoid that by sending it to all the press and them at the same time. Um, in in some ways, I see their point because, like, you know. Certainly, Basecamp is the is the party that chose to go public, for lack of a better term. You know, they chose to kind of litigate it publicly. Um, so Apple probably felt justified in some way in sending that letter to everybody, right? Um, right. But that letter didn't go out until after I had had my interview. Um, you know, I didn't see that letter until after I had had my interview already, and my article was essentially complete. Um, and I included the letter at the last minute, and then you know hit the publish button because I had gotten it along with all the press and, and theoretically Basecamp all at the same time. Um, the letter, though, was essentially an App Store rejection letter, right? And it, it just laid out their reasons for rejecting it and their you know their case for the App Store working the way that it does uh, and then you know sort of ended with a paragraph about Basecamp having benefited from the App Store you know, and and not contributed any revenue back to it, which I think is probably overall the most controversial thing about it. Yeah. Um, you know, or certainly seem to engender the most developer reaction. They're like, oh, we're only worth it if we make a lot of money for you, you know, et cetera, which we can talk about. But I think that the one phrase from my piece, which was something that Phil said, was that, look, if we don't, if the app opens on the store and doesn't do anything, you know, it doesn't work, it doesn't do anything for you. That's not what we want. That's not the user experience we want, Um, which is none of what he said to me was anything, as you said, it's like not anything super revelatory because it's just them restating what they believe the the app store rules to represent, right? They're like, look, this is why we put these stores, these rules in the store. This is what we believe the store is about, and Phil is just restating that stuff. And I think people, because of the reader app rule, and then with Netflix and all of that stuff, yep. they really glommed onto that particular statement about you know an app opening and not working, and they're like, hey, what about these other apps? Now, of course, in the Apple universe, according to Apple's rules, they already have a carve-out for those apps. And so the real argument everybody's making is like, why is email not part of that carve-out, right? right. Um, or 
I guess you could extend that to why does this carve out even exist, right? But it's not like it, it was saying anything extremely new. Um, I felt it was newsworthy in that, you know, they were holding to their stance, which is the my angle I took with my piece, right? That's really what the news was at that moment is that Apple's not saying like, hey, we've reconsidered or hey, we're going to change this thing because of hey or whatever. They were, you know, Phil was very much coming from the place of we have these rules for a reason, um, we think that they, you know, are the right way to go and we're not really going to be changing them at this point. And so that's the tack I took. And, you know, and I tried to report it straight because I put a little opinion in there too, because I feel that people, you know, do want to know, um, you know, what the, the people that are following this thing regularly think about it, but I didn't want to put too much of my own feeling and passion or whatever into that because it, I think the moment warranted it, you know, um, so, you know, I, I just think that it was such a hot button topic that even Phil saying we don't we're not changing our mind, it became kind of a magnet. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it is is because it's a hot button topic and I, I, I don't want to conflate something. And, and again, I realize people's livelihoods are at stake. So I'm not saying it's trivial, right? Like uh, the base camp folks uh, have put millions of dollars into developing hay i mean it's mm-hmm. a huge and huge 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 endeavor for them mm-hmm. um and, and i realized that these app store policies affect companies large and small so I, I i it's not trivial but i realized that in the face of a pandemic that is re-raging out of control that in the face of um uh protests on equality and police brutality across the country and literally also across the world that, you know, but people are this whole thing combined together. The, the, a bunch of emotional powder kicks have made people more sensitive to hot button topics, right? Like that's my point is that if Hay had come out a year ago and in the exact same way with the exact same controversial aspects about a rejection and policy and stuff like that. I think that it would have played very differently. You know, I'm mm-hmm. talking literally like three, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was five days before WWDC, but if it had been before WWDC 2019, it would have played differently. People are on edge and of mm-hmm. course they are. Of We all are. And it's like, you don't even really know it. You think like you're normal and it's like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. You, you you just you were on edge. We've been cooped up. We're you know we're worried right. about getting sick. You know it's it's mm-hmm. crazy. You know it's it's it, and and so yeah. I and I'm not defending it. I'm not even passing judgment on it. But I think whatever Phil Schiller said, whatever the letter, which was just like from the App Store, you mm-hmm. know the closing paragraph about you know we 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 see that you haven't contributed anything to the App Store. Uh, or your Basecamp app has been downloaded millions of times and hasn't contributed any revenue to the App Store, mm-hmm. you know, sort of has that. If you want to, you can see it as that typical gangster threat of nice store you've got here, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think it was, yeah, absolutely. And I think it was the way that that was phrased the, in, in the letter. I, I absolutely think that it was. Hey, you've benefited significantly from this app store. So yeah. I think it's reasonable to say that we do not try to, you know, carve into that business. And we haven't for years, right? Yeah. Into the base camp business. 
because it's played by the rules that we've laid out and you know, you've made every dime of that and we have made zero dimes from that, yeah. right? Um, the, the least charitable way, even if you ignore the whole like sub threat subtext, which I think, as you said, everybody's on edge. So they're, you know, the, you're going to read the worst possible motivations into a lot of things or a lot of people are right now. Um, but even if you ignore that, shave off like the, the worst 10% of the way that you can read into that. I think there's certainly a whole additional swath of people that weren't willing to go to the extreme of like, oh man, this is, you know, this is a threat. And, you know, and I know that um, David used the word uh, gangsters, right? Right. And even if you don't go into that kind of realm, uh, you know, which is a very aggressive stance to take against it, it still definitely reads as like, hey, um, if you don't contribute revenue to it, we're doing you a favor. Yeah. Right. This is a charity for you. And I think that that's like the bigger thing that I think a larger cadre, a larger tranche of people um, responded to, even if you ignore the sort of worst 10% of the way you could interpret that. Right. Um, And I think that that is basically, I I do believe probably still because they were on edge and all of that, but you remember there are a lot of people, a lot of independent developers in the app store where 30% is not a, just a cost of doing business. It's a real difference between, you know, whether their kids eat or not or whatever, um, you know, how much money they make from the store, whether or not it's a sustainable business that they can do forever or whether it's a, something that they were able to do for a while and now can't do anymore. And I've yeah. seen examples of all of that. You know, developers who had a real strong business on the store, but then and eventually just couldn't make ends meet, couldn't make it work. Um, and their products were cool. And great and interesting. And they had users. And it wasn't like, oh, it was a failure. It was just like, I can't make the economics work, right? And so when you're going to come into a a scenario like that, um, I believe saying that was accurate and in some ways fair to say, look, we don't take a cut of this business. Because I think, honestly, that was a big critical thing. And and it's certainly a part of the antitrust discussion is, is Apple taking... Is, are they rent-seeking? Are they using the control of the App Store to take a cut of businesses that they had no um, part in building or have no real you know, part in maintaining, right? And that, that statement was really speaking directly to that argument. It's like saying, are, hey, look, we don't are, take a cut of this. Are they using as – this is to me the, the right way, hopefully, that the regulatory approach will, approach will take is are they using as leverage – to get a cut of X, Y, and Z companies, large and small, whatever. But if are they using to get as leverage something they shouldn't be allowed to use as leverage to get that? Right, right. That's that to me is the question that you know. Hopefully, that's what the regulatory mm-hmm. inquiries will focus on. Correct, um, yeah. And it's to clarify it, you know. The, the, the thing that Schiller said about, hey, you, op- you download the app and launch it. It doesn't do anything. We, that's not what we want. He wasn't saying – and again, I'm not trying to be like a lawyer here and parse his words. But he's not saying that that necessarily means it's against the guidelines of the App Store. So everybody citing X, Y, and Z and the dozens and dozens of apps that you download and don't really do anything unless you already have an account – he wasn't saying it's not allowed. He's saying literally that's not what we want in an ideal situation that, you know, in mm-hmm. theory they would want an app. And again, whether that's right or wrong, that is what he said. But that is the the solution that they found 
that both sides found amenable to do mm-hmm. this, where the Hay guys added a pretty clever and actually, in theory, useful feature where now you can download the Hay app and you can get a temporary throwaway 14-day email address that you could use to sign up for something that you don't want to use a real email address because you suspect, you know, hey, they want they want my email address for this. I know this is just going to get me spam. You could use their app, get a temporary one, use it for 14 days, um, but you still sign up on their website. Mm-hmm. Pay them and do this, and now it's in, and hopefully will no longer be controversial. Um, so I asked about this on my show with Jaws and Federighi, and I didn't want to belabor the point because um, there's so much to talk about, and we had you know a limited amount of time. Um, but I brought it up, and Jaws said something that, as he said it, I wasn't sure if it was a great answer. And then I rewatched it afterwards, and I thought it was a better answer than I gave than I thought at the extemporaneously as we were doing the interview. Um, but he brought up the fact that the App Store, you know, that before the App Store, that getting your soft, you know, selling your software was way worse, and. I, I feel like I have to mention if there was something I should have followed up on the point and didn't is I was only thinking of it and I think it's what Jaws meant, but I'm not sure. I think he was talking about the mobile landscape where pre app store getting quote unquote apps. I mean, I don't even know if people call them apps, but getting stuff all went through the carriers. And if you wanted to have, I mean, I don't even know of anybody who had like third-party email for phones before the iPhone and the App Store. But if you did, you'd have to go through Verizon, and it would be like a Verizon-branded thing. And then you'd have to completely separately negotiate with AT&T and get, do something and have an AT&T logo when your app starts and it's software updates would all go through them. And that's just talking two carriers in one country, the United States, and that's what it was like all over the world. And the software was crappy because the APIs were crappy. And yeah, the 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 app store blew that apart. But that was that's that's 12 years ago. That's a long <laughs> yes. time ago. That's and, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. And the app store is it just is not the upstart that is blowing yeah. up the idea of mobile software. The app store has become bigger and the idea of app stores writ large on Android through Google and Google Play and in China through the Chinese carriers and, and variants of Android that don't go through Google, it, it's the, that's the new world, right? And that world is bigger and more dominant and more a part of everyday life for just normal everyday people than the pre-2007 software landscape for mobile ever was or even mm-hmm. could have dreamed of being, right? Right. Um. So that would be my comeback to that. And then the other thing I think I have to mention is that it completely – it really only makes sense in the historical context of looking at mobile and doesn't look at the historical context of the Mac and desktop software right, right. where – you know, and and a lot of the same developers, you know, developers who were writing great Mac software through the 90s and the 2000s and writing Cocoa apps and selling them directly with no app store and no 30% cut to Apple and building a good business and having them promoted by Apple and stuff like that. You know, it's it certainly is not the true 
the truth that you had to go through retail channels where Ingram Micro was taking 70% of your price to mm-hmm. get a box software <laughs> on a shelf. Right. Yeah. There, yeah. there was a thriving landscape for indie independent and, and not, not just small indie developers, but like a, a you know, a, a big startup well funded with millions and millions of dollars of VC money mm-hmm. could build software for the Mac using these APIs, you know? Yeah. And the last point I want to make on this front is mm-hmm. on this issue of Apple benefiting from developers with great apps in the app store, whether they make mm-hmm. money from them or not, right? And and, and right. there's that, that line in that letter insinuates that if Apple isn't making money from them, just a direct, you know, income revenue coming in, then they're not really benefiting. And again, I think that, To me, it harkens back to what I said about Jaws's comment and the indie Mac, or not indie, but just independent of Apple. You know, Mm -hmm. not indie Mm -hmm. like meaning small companies, but just all developers, third party developers. Mm -hmm. That's good for Apple. It was great for Apple when, when, and I really, I really mean it. I don't know that there would be an iPhone without it. That part of the appeal. And really, the very best technical thing that Apple acquired when Next when Next came back, you know, maybe the best thing was the leadership and Steve Jobs and the executives he brought with him. But at a technical level, it was the what what became known as the Cocoa frameworks, mm-hmm. and that they let develop. It sounds like hype, you know, that hey, one person can write an app that does amazing <laughs> right. things. But you wind up with things like my friend Gus Mueller at at uh Flying Meat who's one, you know, he runs a company with his wife, but he's a, the only developer and has written Acorn, which is a legitimate Photoshop competitor. Not right. saying it's feature for feature as deep as Photoshop, but you can certainly for me personally, I use it where I used to use Photoshop. One person mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. because of Coco, because of yeah. all the, how deep this, these frameworks are, that's good for Apple, right? It is good for Apple when developers are building apps that can only exist on Apple platforms. Or if it is cross-platform, that it is a full-fledged, you know, like, hey, which is a web-based thing and it has an Android app and a Mac app and stuff like that. It, it it Apple benefits both ways. It benefits when developers do things that take advantage of Apple's systems in a way that can only exist on the Apple platforms because then it's a distinguishing feature. And then it benefits when cross-platform stuff is fully available and a great experience on the Apple platform. You know, again, I'm showing my age, I guess, but I remember, you know, in the 90s when there was an awful lot of cool stuff that was only on Windows and it was mm-hmm. a huge problem for Apple. Huge. Yeah. And I mean, you know, all you got to do is look at gaming, <laughs> right? Like right. if you just want right. to pick one one industry that drove, yep. you know, technological advances and high margin computer hardware businesses and all of that for decades, it's been gaming, right? right. And like a good portion of the reason the Mac wasn't dominant for a long time um, was that gamers didn't buy Macs because they knew that yep. they couldn't, you know, and I'm, not, I'm making generalizations. I know there are gamers on Macs, you know, I'm a gamer, I had a Mac, but at the same time, it was driving the high-margin hardware business forward. And, and Apple, you know, either for whatever reason or for many reasons, I should say, not, the reasons are there, which we don't need to go into, chose not to kind of go after that, right? And they went towards the creative professional and all of that stuff. But if they had wanted to 
say, capture the gaming market, and if they had, you know, had a desire to, their strategy would have been different. And it's the same thing with the App Store. If they had wanted only revenue generating, direct revenue generating apps on the App Store, their policies and marketing would have been different. But they knew in their core, they knew that the numbers about how many apps were on the store and how many developers supported it and how many major companies had an app for the for the iPhone, even if they were not for pay apps, even if they were free apps or extension apps, all of those things benefited the iPhone ecosystem and drove the billions and eventually trillions of dollars in sales right. of the iPhone. There's just right. no no getting around that. So you right. making that statement is one of those times where it's like, this is technically true and it is fair to point out, but maybe it's not the right time. <laughs> And maybe it's a little disingenuous because you know very well that free apps and apps that contribute no revenue to the store still drive hardware sales. And just because the business overall has a much stronger mix of services revenues now and and app store revenue is a non-trivial component of that services revenue doesn't mean that you're not still selling hardware by the bucket and that those apps didn't contribute to that. And don't continue to contribute to that. And that that's the primary sustaining business of we're, you know, we Apple are selling the thousand dollar phones and $500 phones and $700 iPads and $300 iPads and $300 keyboards for iPads and (laughs) Macs that range from a thousand to $60,000. $600 wheels, you know, just a a variety of items. (laughs) Got a bunch of hair caught in my wheel. I better get another one. How much is that? Oh, $100. Um, but the, that's the primary business that they're in and that the yeah. services stuff is secondary and that the specific aspect of services that is taking a cut of third-party developers writing stuff for your platform is secondary on the secondary, right? Like the main services push for Apple should be their own services. Getting people to pay for iCloud, getting people to sign up for Apple TV Plus, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, and so forth. And so hopefully that's not lost. But it's a good segue into WWDC because I, I, I think it plays into it. But let me take a break right here and just thank our first sponsor. Um, oh, I love this company. HelloFresh. You can get mouth-watering seasonal recipes with pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kick, kit. Uh, HelloFresh makes cooking at home fun, easy, and affordable. Break out your, of your dinner rut. Oh, are we in a dinner rut here at the Gruber household? Uh, in mid-June, three, four months, five months, six years into quarantine. But HelloFresh can help you break out. They have over 22 seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. And you get to pick what's up for you, what what's right for your family, your household, you. Low-calorie options, vegetarian options, family-friendly recipes. That's code for kid-friendly recipes, but they've got you covered. They have more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you know you're going to get something delicious. You save time and stress effortlessly. They cut out the stressful meal planning and prepping so you can enjoy cooking, get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes, sometimes even 20 minutes with their quick recipe options. That's another thing you get to choose as you go, you, you know your budget for time. Average trip to the grocery store takes 41 minutes. That's over 35 hours a year if you go once a week. 
HelloFresh can cut that down. And we all know with everything going on today, cutting down on trips to the grocery store is more important than ever, less stressful. Ah, it's just so great. Flexible, fit your lifestyle, recipe options that are delicious and fit your needs. And they even can throw in stuff like sides, desserts, garlic bread, cookie dough, all sorts of fun stuff. And right now, HelloFresh is starting at just $5.66 per serving. Go to HelloFresh.com slash TalkShow10. That's TalkShow10. HelloFresh.com slash TalkShow10. And remember that code, TalkShow10, during HelloFresh's sale, and you could get 10 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash TalkShow10. And that code, TalkShow10, get 10 free meals, including shipping. My thanks to them. So anyway, parlaying this into WWDC, I think what uh, part of what's interesting about this, and, and it really is to me a parlay from this controversy over the App Store and where Apple's focus should be of if you get too caught up spe- thinking about the iPhone in particular, and, and you know, and that's where Hayes app got caught up. The iPhone has um, a d- direct rivals, primarily, you know, almost entirely now the Android platform. And something like Hey can run on Android, and it's largely the same. Um, and, and you can get caught up thinking about the developer angle that way. But Apple is really expanding, and I think the watch in particular. I know on my show this week with Federighi and Jaws, I didn't spend a lot of time on the watch. But the watch is so interesting to me from a developer perspective because it's a very personal device. And... I, it, it really is. I know that that's sort of what Apple said six, seven years ago when they first introduced it, but it is. A watch is a personal fashion statement, and it's right there. It's literally touching your skin when you're using it. Um, and they're adding it. They're, they're, I think it's really neat the way that they're emphasizing these the, the complications as a way of personalizing it so that, and, and face sharing so that you can um, – if you have a face set up just the way you want it, you can share it with a friend or a family member. Like, hey, how, how do you get your watch to look like that? Here, let me mm-hmm. share it to you. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting about the watch in a broad sense is there's no real competition for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, what if if you thought about that during the week at WWDC, and that and that it fits in with the landscape. It's not like watch developers, Apple Watch developers, are this whole other ecosystem of developers, it is the same developers who were writing iPhone apps and iPad apps and Mac apps. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the the watch, for some time now, it's been clear that it doesn't actually have a competitor, right? There certainly have been other challengers um, and certainly people that were in that space, you know, before Apple uh, and have now gone defunct or kind of lost their way. And then there's certainly major competitors that are trying to pour money into it, like Google, obviously. Um, But it's become very clear that the competition the watch has is not against other people. It is against its own usefulness, right? It is against the the desire for somebody or the, 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 the sight line somebody has from not having one to why would it be good for me to have one? That's their major challenge and competition, right? Um, and I think that that's, that's probably 
you could look at a lot of the announcements that were made um, at WW about the watch through that lens, and it, it starts to make pretty pretty simple, straightforward sense, right? The watch sharing or the face sharing is definitely something that is that was lacking with the watch is some sort of like viral mechanic for sharing its usefulness, right? Because the face is essentially the core of what makes it useful to most people. You're, you look at things, you, it tells you things, you can take actions from the face. All of the, the initial wave of things that they thought were going to be useful, like, oh, they got a bunch of apps and you can scroll around and poke at it. Nobody uses that shit. Right. You know, like in in all reality, you know, right. uh, they're edge cases, but the 80% use case, which is what Apple always cares about, is that the face, you know, it's what is it telling me right now? What can it provide me quick access to like a like an activity or or weather or or calendar or radio station or whatever, right? And that via, that face sharing thing, while it seems like, oh, this is kind of fun thing. Oh, cool, right? It actually is the first time that the watch has had some sort of potentially viral channel for sharing directly its usefulness with other people. Because I don't actually believe that the watch sharing is aimed primarily, it's aimed strongly secondarily at people that own watches, it's aimed primarily at people that don't own watches. And it's aimed at saying like, oh, look at this watch sharing thing. And it has a nice preview. It shows me the, the complications and the things that I could do on it if somebody shared it with me. And I can uh, look at all these things I could do if I only had the watch. And this watch sharing thing adds that sort of uh, like patina of usefulness to the whole enterprise. And it acts as like a, a genuine vector for telling people this thing is useful to you. It shortens the onboarding time. It keeps it useful long term so that they continue to be invested in the platform and they buy new watches and all of that. So I think that if you look through the at the announcements through that lens, you start some of them start to make more sense. Yeah, and I just think it shows the way forward, or not the way forward, but it it it's the clarifying notion for apple that that this is a virtuous circle where you're you're improving the watch in ways that makes the watch more valuable to the people who already have it makes it more likely that they'll buy a new one eventually that they'll recommend it to friends and that they're going to wear it and use it and like it and be like i feel naked without my watch i want my steps i want my but i want these complications that i've set up because my watch face was just for me mm-hmm. and that keeps people in the ecosystem it makes it more likely you know if you have a watch you want to have an iphone it makes it more likely you're in the iphone and then apple is selling three four hundred dollar watches and five hundred six hundred thousand dollar iphones keeping people in the system apple's you know last i checked doing pretty well financially and again <laughs> i famous spending tim cook's money is a very easy thing to do as an armchair quarterback i get it i try not to do it but at a certain level when you're literally the most profitable company in the world and by however you want to do the inflation adjustment up there among the handful in history, like going back hundreds of years to the East India Trading Company, you you, you know you don't have to sweat the marginal. Let's see if we can get thirty percent out of the signups from this software as a service thing on the phone. 
again, I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. It's very easy to tell somebody else when, when they've had, when they have enough money, you know, it's not mine, but they don't need it, you know? And mm-hmm. I just think that the watch is really clarifying as to how just getting buy-in from developers to do things that really only make sense in the Apple ecosystem is really good for Apple in and of itself, even if they're not making any 30% of this or that just by having, you know, developers making these complications for mm-hmm. the watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the, the face sharing or yeah, face sharing, I think that's what they're calling it, but the face sharing yeah. situation, it, it allows, it's, it's the first time that Apple, so Apple always emphasizes on their site, you know, obviously, oh, here's some third party apps and things that you can install. And uh, uh, here's all of our first party features we built, right? Um, and some of those are cool and some of the third party apps are neat, but the face sharing thing is interesting because it doesn't currently, nothing like it currently exists even for the app store because the app store says, right. hey, here's some single serving single compartment experiences that you can download um, that may be useful to you. Here's a calendar app, here's a game, here's a, a health app, etc. cetera. Uh, but what the App Store doesn't have currently is here's a package of things that are mm-hmm. useful to you together in this really compelling way. Like it doesn't, right now, the App Store doesn't have a way to download workflows to say, and, and you know, to some degree, shortcuts is that, but that's not really accessible to a major audience. It's accessible to people that want to tool around with it, and it's very cool. But as far as I am a, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a CPA, and I want to get the best use out of my iPhone. Oh, you need <laughs> these seven tools, you know? Right. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an, uh, an athlete, and I'm a, not only an athlete, I'm a college athlete. Okay, you need to download... Uh, this education helper, uh, you know, this, this thing to keep track of your classes that's specifically designed for athletes. You need to download this training app, this, this, um, nutrition app and this thing, right. And that could be packaged together by the college or by a a developer or whatever. None of that exists for the store. It's all like lists of apps. Like, Oh, if you're, if you're a so-and-so you need these 10 apps. Okay, cool. Now I got to download them, figure out how to configure them, understand what they do. You know, all of this, right? It's a lot of labor. Whereas the watch face is very interesting because it says, Hey, here's three different apps from a developer, three different developers, plus some first party stuff from Apple swizzled together to create a best case scenario for a runner or for a swimmer or for a person concerned with health or for a person that manages a complex schedule or for a person who does both, <laughs> you know, yeah. and here's, here's some things that that'll work for you. And I think that's really cool and unique to the watch. And it does what Apple does best, which is say third party stuff you know, or what Apple at its best, I should say does, which is, Hey, here's third party stuff that does amazing work. We think this really shows off the, the the cool stuff that the platform is capable of. Plus, here's some first-party work that we did because we know this hardware intimately and we knew we could push it to the limit to do something like, you know, hearing amplification or assistance or health yeah. healthcare or whatever, you know? And I think that's that's a really interesting and unique thing. Yeah, and I think I'm getting this right, that, that one of the weird, not weird, but maybe in hindsight was a weird limitation, was previously you, you could only have one complication from an app on one watch face at a time. 
And so you couldn't, if you're, let's say you're a weather nut, you couldn't have like three weather complications from the same weather app on the same face at, at a time. And, you know, again, that's like a, it's a niche and it's like the sort of thing that maybe Apple didn't think of is, Hey, what if you are a weather nut? You know, mm-hmm. what if you really do want, a, you know, three different complications <laughs> right. all about the weather on your watch face at a time? Maybe sure. you're a meteorologist, you know, or maybe, maybe you're, you're a commuter. You're, Right, and right. you commute between two cities, right, or whatever right. that or, have microclimates. Or, I mean, look at Oakland right. and the Bay. I mean, those are different. Those are different right. weather ecosystems, you know. <laughs> right, right. What if you don't live in the Bay where it's seventy-one degrees mm-hmm. on cold days and seventy-three when it's hot? You right, know? but you commute there for work, and then you go back to right. Hayward where it's like ninety. You know, <laughs> and so you know there are definitely cases where you would want that for sure. Yeah. But I just think that the watch, even though it is sort of the, you know, uh, you know, like I said, on my show, I had an hour with those, with uh, Federighi and Jaws, and we certainly spent the less, least time on the watch. And not because it isn't deserving, but that it just had so much to say about the Mac and other things, which you and I can get to in a moment. But I just think it exemplifies that sort of how does app, the answer to that question of, well, you know, why should Hey get to have an app in the app store if they're not giving Apple any money? Apple gets stuff out of it when developers are engaged with their platforms. And it's, it, it's just ridiculous to pretend otherwise. Can't mm-hmm. necessarily put a dollar amount on all of it. All right. Let me take one more break. We only have two sponsors for this show because it's sort of a special brief post WWDC, uh, episode. But it's our good friends at Squarespace. Oh, man, Squarespace. That's where you can start building your website today, right at squarespace.com. Talking about software as a service. You just pay them. You get a great website. You have a great interface to do every single thing you could possibly want to do with your own custom website, from designing it to deciding what components are a part of it. Like if you want a blog, you want to host a podcast, or maybe you have a portfolio of stuff that you want to sell and actually do the commerce on your website and sell it. You can do all of that at Squarespace. Analytics built in, see who's coming to your website, where from, stuff like that. Um, and it's just so professional looking, all these templates to choose from, all WYSIWYG right there. You'd see it, you look at it, what you see as you're designing it is exactly what people will see when they're visiting it because it's literally the exact same interface except yours as the editing option and, and the actual viewing one doesn't. Really, next time you need a website, somebody comes to you for help with a website, get them started at Squarespace, put an hour or two into it, and see how far you get, and you really won't look back. Where do you go to find out more? Go to squarespace.com slash talk show. And when you decide to sign up and pay, look, you get a free trial. It lasts, uh, I think, like a month. It's crazy. You get a great free trial. Just remember that when you go to pay, go to squarespace.com slash talk show, or just remember the code talk show, and you get 10% off your first purchase, including up to an entire year, a whole year. And if you do sign up for a year, you also get a free domain name registration. So my thanks to Squarespace. Just remember the code talk show, squarespace.com slash talk show, code talk show, save 10%. So the Mac is really moving to ARM. Yeah, it is. I'm interested. Is that a finally? I don't know. <laughs> I think it is a finally. <laughs> I think, it's, I think finally. it's probably not surprising in hindsight. I think that they've hinted. Apple does not like to say how long they've been working on things that they've been working on. They're you know secretive about everything, including how many years 
certain endeavors have taken. Mm-hmm. Um, but they couldn't even help but say it this time, you know, like they when they revealed that the emulation layer is going to be called Rosetta 2, they even said that they've had, you know, the same, some of the same engineers who worked on the PowerPC to Intel Rosetta are working on this and that they've been spending years on it. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the things that I know you've spent a lot of time recently with Mac Pro and thinking about that. And you and I were there in that handful of people who were invited to talk to Schiller and Federighi and, and John Turnus about Apple's sort of, Hey, we, you know, let, we're, we're, we painted ourselves in that thermal corner. Let's get our way out of it. We, we want, we want to be a big part of the pro workstation market. Um, you know, where, 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 how does this clarify the view for that for you? of where Apple, not just where they are right now and what this means in the next two years as they transition, but where they've been thinking for the last four or five years on Mac hardware. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's certainly a... It's interesting because I, I haven't, you know, as, as you mentioned, I've been kind of um, using a Mac Pro lately and, and I'm kind of playing around with it and trying to think about it. I'll probably write something about it. Um, I wanted to kind of wait until the first blush of people had had their chance to talk and, um, frankly, until professionals had had it in their workflows for a bit so that I could <laughs> ask around, you know, to, to people that I knew were using it and kind of say, hey, how does this, how does it actually work? You know, not how do, how do I think this thing's going to work and not really a discussion about, you know, <laughs> pricing value or all the initial stuff. I want to know, did they do a good job? Right? Did this thing work? And I think that when you look at it through the context or look at ARM through the context of the Mac Pro, I think it's very interesting because a lot of people are saying, like, oh, who would buy a Mac Pro now and all that stuff? Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to be seeing ARM processors in Mac Pros for five years, personally. Um, I don't, I do think it'll be sooner. I think when they say two years, I think within two years, they're, they're, it'll be everything. I really do. Now, whether that means they won't continue to still have mm-hmm. the Intel CPU option in the Mac Pro in mm-hmm. particular, I don't know. But I think that there might be an entirely ARM option for even like a $25,000, $30,000 workstation mm-hmm. class Mac Pro within two within years. Two years. Interesting. I really do. Okay. I think so. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, I think the one thing that was, you know, that was very – that stood out for me – which matters for it matters for everybody. It matters for all compute, but it especially matters for mobile compute. Is um, Johnny Sruji, um, Apple's kind of chip head chip guy, uh, was saying he, the phrase that he used was it was basically incomparable price per per watt, right? Um, right. And and that right. or power per watt. Excuse me, not price per watt. <laughs> they, have, they haven't mentioned pricing yet, um, but power per watt. Uh, so basically, <laughs> you put in. X amount of power into a current Intel processor, and you get back a certain amount of um, a watt of, of compute. And then you put in the same amount of power to an ARM processor, or their ARM processors that they're going to be making or already are making that we don't know about yet. And you're going to get back more for the same amount of wattage, right? And this this is right. something that obviously, I mean, if any chip people are listening to this, I'm sorry that we're talking about it in like baby. Google Gaga speak, right? But I think a lot of people don't kind of, it definitely, there was some discussion about it, but I think a lot of people kind of overlooked that 
particular sentence just because there was a lot going on. Oh my God, they're armed. They're switching away from Intel. You know, oh my God. Oh, cool. They're going to develop their own processors, you know, tightly integrated with hardware and software. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. But like I wrote a piece in, I was looking at it the other, uh, after that presentation, I looked it up because it was essentially the same kind of argument for the iPhone. And the argument that I was making at the time, this was, they just started shipping A-series processors. Um, and so my argument was, look, the iPhone's biggest flaw is the battery, right? And it's not really a flaw in that it's a mistake Apple made. It's just a flaw in the system, right? It, iPhones would be capable of so much more if they were more power efficient or if they had more power available to them. And the only way you know, to do that, well, there's two major ways. One way is develop an entirely new battery chemistry, um, which all companies on the planet that have any interest in compute have been exploring uh, to no avail yet. You know, there's some promising technologies, but like carbon nanotubes and everything else is always on the horizon and, you know, graphene and blah, 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 right? There's always some new battery technology on the horizon somewhere, but none of it has materialized. Um, So the other major way to do that, of course, is to get more efficient on the compute side. And Apple has done that in a variety of ways, including moving their graphics um, frameworks to write to the chip rather than having an, an intermediate layer like an OpenGL. Um, they've done a, a large amount of work, obviously, optimizing their software to run on their own silicon, which is a huge part of it. And they've got, you know, every time the iPhone comes out, it's like, oh, better battery life, better battery life. It's like, how are you doing this? It's the same battery, right? And sometimes it's more battery in the casing. You know, it's a few millimeters here, a few millimeters there, you know, liquid battery technologies and, you know, all of that. They're eking it out wherever they can. Well, this I view as their big chance to kind of push hard into that, hey, how, what if we shipped a laptop with our own processor you know, one question is like, oh, what if we shipped a laptop with their own processor and had tightly integrated everything and better security and all of that? I think that's great, but a lot of those points are kind of hard to sell. What is really easy to sell is, hey, our, we just came out with a laptop that has all the same power as that Intel laptop that you were thinking of buying, but the, it's double the battery life. Enjoy, <laughs> right? And like 100% yeah. improvement on battery life is absolutely within stabbing distance. You know, of of a, an arm driven yeah. portable, and that's why I think that a lot of their focus is going to be on where they can get the biggest toehold and gains, and sort of own that market and really just destroy the, the the competition for at least some period of time. And that's why I think the focus is definitely going to be on MacBook Pros and all of that. You know, the portable lineup first, but. You know, and that's why, in my mind, the timeline was like longer for the Mac Pro, um, but also very exciting in the near term for MacBooks. You know, because I think this will be the first time we've we've seen a, a generational multiplicative jump in a long time because a lot of the underlying technologies haven't yeah. changed. I I feel like exactly like you do, where I feel like you you and I talking about this is sort of like babies talking about (laughs) nuclear physics compared to people who really know the chips. But on the other hand, I feel like we're at least the babies who kind of have a sense of how big a deal this is. And I really want to convey And like, maybe it's a bad analogy, but I, I feel like there's a lot of people who are thinking about this wrongly along the lines of... Let's say instead of switching instruction set architectures from Intel mm-hmm. to ARM or x86 to ARM, if Apple had bought right. AMD 
and they said, okay, we're, we've bought AMD. Now we own them and we're going to switch the Mac to, you know, AMD x86 processors. And, you know, there's going to be cost efficiency and we don't have to pay, you know, any kind of margin on it because we're going to do these chips ourselves. And, you know, it's not like that at all. That's not what they're, that's not even close to what they're doing. And that would have been big news and a big deal in the market for PC hardware. Um, and certainly would have meant a lot to PC, PC gamers who like buying AMD chips if they were worried that Apple, now that they bought AMD, isn't going to sell them in that way, et cetera, and so forth. That's, I don't even know if that was ever even on the table. But I just think that that's how some people are looking at this. Like, oh, from a business perspective, Apple's cutting Intel off no longer has to pay Intel any kind of profit on these chips, mm-hmm. you know, which are expensive parts right. of a Mac, you know, of 150 course. bucks or, you know, 200 bucks out of a thousand dollar MacBook Air. And now they can cut that off and they have lower margin and maybe they're a little smaller and run a little cooler or something. I don't think that's it at all. I think it's like you said, like it, it, we're talking about like a 2X factor. We're talking about, think about the fact that the iPad Pro clearly out benchmarks MacBook Pros and doesn't have mm-hmm. a fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what are they going to do? Are they going to bring fanless design to the MacBook Pros, which would be huge? Or are they going to keep the fans and build chips that we've never seen mm-hmm. from Apple that do can run to the point where they require right. a fan? But imagine what they could do if that's what the A12Z mm-hmm. can do. Without a fan, what would happen if they built one that, yeah, oh, yeah, we're going to keep the fans, you know, and it's, you know, in the same way, we're like, you know, a 16-inch MacBook Pro, typically, even when the fan kicks in, it's not like you hear a yeah. hair dryer going. Um, but but I mean, like, a weird a, a schism in uh, performance per watt that that just does not and and also probably isn't really that analogous to even the power pc to mm-hmm. intel ship shift 15 years ago it's right. more significant maybe another very loose analogy that you could poke holes in very quickly is sort of thinking of electric cars and vehicles as oh you just don't have to put gasoline in them anymore but they ride mm-hmm. the same right so instead of pumping gas into them you plug it in but then you actually get in one and press the gas puddle and you're like oh <laughs> oh this this, right. this is totally different oh can i do that again i would like to stop this and start it again i, I would like to yeah. Oh, right. It you know, I, I I feel like there might be that sort of moment when they reveal this even just the very first Max that they have in order where you you just look at them and you'll be like, "Oh, this is this yeah. is very different." Yeah. I mean, I'm excited about it in in for ways that I mean, like my most of the time honestly, I work on either the iPad Pro now or a desktop, right? And so for me, the the battery power debate is like I mean the iPad Pro's battery life is so amazing you know um, that it, it I'm already living yeah. in that world right but plenty of people can't yet work on an iPad Pro or want the more want more flexibility they want to use a Mac right for all of the reasons that the Mac is so good you use it to tinker try crazy new things you know build apps for for one thing um, and you know I'm so glad that they're they're investing in that and I think a lot of people are but. I, you know, we, the fact is we have never seen a maker, a, a software hardware maker ever that has fielded a chip design team, 
set the rules for how that hardware is used, and then built the software for that hardware, they're always, it's always playing on somebody else's playground. Even if they have influence, even if they've said, oh, well, these are the specs that we want, they've never had that kind of down-to-the-roots control. And it's always somebody else's job, right, to do those things and somebody else's responsibility and ultimately somebody else's decision and how to fabricate those things. And sure, Apple has been doing that for a little while with the, the A-series chips because they've been, you know, saying, hey, here's exactly what we want. Please build this. But we've never really seen that from a, a, a desktop manufacturer ever. Um, every You could argue <laughs> right now that every Windows laptop could work 10 times better if Microsoft also made all the processors, right? Because there's, those teams could integrate very deeply with one another and, and make it work. But it, you're, you're always dealing with, like, either you've got underhead or overhead, you know, either... Th- power that you're utilizing or power that you wish you had or that you aren't utilizing or power that you wish you had. Um, And I think that it's a very, very exciting thing to see what happens when they do that. I mean, I think people at Intel, the smart people, are probably really, really worried right now because the only reason they have to be able to sleep right now is Mac market share because they're like, oh, you know, it's a tiny part of the market. We supply a ton of processors to to a lot of different manufacturers. You know, we're agnostic, etc. But if you're able to launch a laptop that says, hey, this is 75 to 100% better than a competitor rather than the normal 20% that happens every generation, it starts being a huge fucking problem for them, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think I, I touched on this on my show, and I just feel – and, and it, there's only so far you can press with those guys. And I feel like Federighi was delightfully like, yeah, we're totally committed to the Mac and, and in a way that hopefully would reassure more people than even just that huge slide from two years ago with the big no that we're going to just combine the iPad and the Mac. Um, and I, I just feel that there is a sense at the company that they, they have a very – they're not doing things like redesigning the Mac Pro with a year or two ahead, you know, like like the the end of the their their foresight for where they're going with the Mac is twenty twenty two or something like that. They're not going through this transition with you know like one or two years of Mac hardware ahead of them. This is a very long play. I mean, decade at least, probably decades. And what they're really thinking of is not. I think is not just shackled to the history of what is the Mac in the context of the PC market. It is the broader sense of what do we need? What is the need for a computer workstation at the highest levels of performance that as an industry we can build? Where's that going five, 10 years from now? What are the needs? What, what, what jobs are there to be done that require the most possible graphics and CPU and now neural engine compute going forward? And I think that it really I, – I, I think that there's a sense that, that what the Mac is, the Mac is, I guess, going to be Apple's answer in that regard. And that's a very different problem domain than – what is it that you do with an iPad or an iPad Pro or your phone? I mean, and, and it's not to diminish those things. Like you, I know you just said it, and I know you're you're really serious about it that you do a lot of your work on iPad. I've done more work, uh, more of my writing 
on a daily basis and emailing and, and a lot of other stuff that I would consider work on my iPad ever since the, the update in March that added trackpad and support. Uh, it's delightful, but I'm not, I know that I'm not pressing it as a computer, right? That, you know, and, and that's really what this is about in a lot of ways is what, what do you need? What, why, why, you know, like maybe that's it. Why, why still fight to make the Mac relevant? Why not? Why not just, just make iPads and put the iPad on a laptop and say, we don't even have to have this other platform. We could simplify things greatly. I think it's because they see a whole bunch of problems that, that demand a computing platform that has the most performance that they can get possible. Mm -hmm. I think that's terribly exciting. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And, And I, that, the idea that there was, you know, certainly there's certain Apple applications, especially uh, neural engine work and, and ML work that, uh, and AR for as a current example, um, that tax, you know, iPad hardware, let's say, right? Because iPad hardware is currently some of the most powerful you can buy from Apple, right? Um, and that, right. They, they're certainly ones that hit the peaks there, <laughs> you know, that, that, that tap against the boundaries of what the iPad does. But the vast majority of what you do on it doesn't. And some of that is related to the tasks, right? You just, you know, you're not compiling an enormous application um, with millions of lines of code uh, with a bunch of itinerant frameworks, you know, that, that um, on the iPad Pro, you know, that you would normally do on a Mac. Um, and there are certain things that developers do there. There are certain things that graphics professionals do. Obviously, you know, like with the Mac Pro, like I've been playing around with a bunch of 6K streams in Final Cut and things like that. There are certain things that would overtax, you know, would hit the cap of what's going on there. And so when when you say... And sometimes it could sound hyperbolic that we literally don't know what these machines are actually capable of. That's just true. Like we don't know what a, an ARM-powered Mac is capable of yet because they've just never had the same set of constraints. And that's one of the things about owning the hardware, obviously, is that Apple can say, hey, these are the constraints that we have for the iPad. Obviously, battery life is an enormous one. It needs to drive this, you know, display. It needs to drive these certain things. And it can, it's essentially never going to be plugged in, (laughs) you know, while it's being used. All of those constraints. And so we're... (laughs) The laptop thing is more of a known quantity because I think we're going to say, see, like, hey, what, what does a laptop that a laptop version of the iPad Pro look like? But the desktop aspect of it is going to be fascinating because we've never seen that. Like you mentioned right. the, the Mac Pro, and like my my timeline is based on this idea that the Mac Pro architecture as it currently exists was actually designed to support ARM because there's no way that they would have restarted. Yeah. Two years ago, at the time they restarted, right. and not known that they were doing this. So, right, and, and I think that maybe in hindsight, and maybe someday we'll get the story. But maybe if if this arm transition took them a little bit longer than they thought, and maybe what they had before didn't last quite as long as they wanted, and that maybe part of that whole meeting, you know, with me and you and Ina Fried and. Uh, uh, you know, and they they more or less pre-announced the iMac Pro and said we're going to make an all new Mac Pro, and maybe that they figured you know we do need we we have enough of a gap in between what we already have and where we want to go 
with our own silicon that we need to do something in the interim and have like an awesome Intel based iMac Pro for true pro performance and let's ship the Mac Pro that we mm-hmm. have in mind based around Xeon stuff first. But clearly they built that. I mean, I, I, the, the Mac Pro in particular, I mean, absolutely positively was built by Turnus's team knowing what they were doing deeply at a deep technical sense where they're going with their custom mm-hmm. silicon. Yeah. Yeah. Terribly exciting. Yeah. It's, it honestly is really, really interesting because this stuff doesn't, you know, processor roadmaps are known, right? Because those companies make processors right. and they got to tell their, their, they got to tell the markets what's coming, right? Hey, we're going to, we got these new things and hopefully people are going to love them and we're making great stuff and all these technical advances. But, you know, we kind of know what Intel is shipping three years out, right? And, or four years out. And so right. you kind of, what, what they hope, they hope to, ship, to. <laughs> right? Right, exactly. In an ideal world, this is what we'll right. be shipping. Um, right. But it's right now. We just it, this is the first time in a long time where the the arc under a major computing platform uh, or the, the the column under which you would fill in these. Oh, this is going to use the you know the ninety nine hundred, and this is going to use the seventy two hundred, and this is going to use whatever. It's blank. And we just don't, you know, we just don't know. And yeah. that is, that's exciting. You know, to a, to, you know, to a processing nerd, yeah. it's exciting. But also to anybody who's yeah. interested in general purpose computing, I think it's, it's I thought that the other thing that was a little bit of a hint, and I just think that there's way too many people who are looking at these dev kits with the A12Z and thinking that that's even vaguely what they're talking about shipping. You know, like, oh, well, I guess they'll come out with an A14 for the iPhone in September and then there'll be an A14M and that's just a slight variant mm-hmm. for the Mac. It's like, that's not what they're yeah. talking about at no, all. No, it doesn't feel that way to me. Yeah, interesting yeah. times. So what do you want to talk about before we wrap up? You want to talk about my show? Oh, no. The, uh, I mean, I think I thought your show went great. I think the I think the WWDC is an interesting topic, though. Just like the how how the show went. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, how they did I mean, I think they virtually. did a good job virtually. Yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 there's some people saying, hey, they should do this from now on, you know, just like forgo the Every physical year. one. I saw Mark, I saw Marco <laughs> Arment tweeted that. Marco just doesn't want to leave his beloved beach house. Yeah, he's off, he's off enjoying the, the warm Atlantic Ocean. Uh, yeah. 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 I, you know, I will just say I have been a guest at Marco's beach house. And I can just tell you that Marco at that beach house is, he's like plugged into the matrix and like, it's like, it, it, the dopamine coming uh-huh. into his brain is just—he really loves Living it there. His best it's life. like it is paradise yeah. for him. He just, yeah, he just does not want to leave. It's like June is June is beach time for I Marco Arment. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like if if WWDC's traditional month was sure. January, he'd be out. Like, He's like, know, let's when go. Macworld was he wouldn't? Yeah, he'd be. Yeah, he'd be like, let's go. Let's get. Yeah, because it's going to be seventy two in, so in January in, in the Bay. So, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. yeah, but I do, I I do wonder. I I I wonder. I I don't think it's mm-hmm. off the table that this might permanently change WWDC in some way. Certainly, they'll still have the right. media, you know, uh, for you know a, a keynote. I uh, I I I still think that they like it. I think they like the face to face WWDC. I will this change how they do the presentations? I I. The other thing that is compelling is a lot of some developers are saying, I like these presentations better because presenting directly for a camera is 
giving these presentations a more intimate and direct feeling than a presentation that was meant to be delivered on a stage in a convention yep. room. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I thought that the format did a few things for me that I, I thought were very positive. One, um, the presenters got their time to shine. These are people that have worked on these projects. Um, you know, they have worked, you know, for years mm-hmm. sometimes without ever talking about it once to anybody <laughs> on these things. And they, they yep. got a chance to, you know, the pr- presentations on the stage are great and fine and all of that. And I know the videotaped versions of those are fine. But those those presentations are often extremely slide-heavy you know, and the presenter is de-emphasized, for lack of a better term. And in these, yes. the presenter is definitely yeah. right up there in the front. Uh, you get to see so many really interesting, cool people present projects they've worked on for a really hell of a long time at Apple. As I mentioned, sometimes in complete obscurity or secrecy for years. And um, I think that was really fun. Yeah. That was really cool. Their passion definitely showed. And I thought the presentations were more engaging for it, you know. Um yeah, and then for me, like the other big thing that's positive out of this, and I'm, I'm hell, I'm going to ask Apple. I don't know if they'll ever share or how much data they have, but I, I tweeted that I'd bet anything that that this is the most inclusive audience for WW that they've ever had, because I know that Apple has gone through an extensive amount of efforts to try to get students, developers of color, Black developers, mm-hmm. Latinx developers, um, LGBTQ director uh, developers uh, to the show. Physically, you know, to take part yeah. in the show, to make sure that they are creating a welcoming environment. But there's only so much you can do. And, and the and, show sometimes it feels yeah. homogenous. A lot of white dudes, you know? Yeah. And well, and the, yeah, and the, the biggest thing, and literally 50 50 demographically, not in the world, is right. women and men and, and mm-hmm. gender and, and LGBTQ. And, but just, you know, yeah, lots, lots and mm-hmm. lots of white dudes. And I'd imagine that, you know, like, the, that's, yeah, that's the people audience. sort of quote-unquote, participating in this live week. You know, sure, the, the videos are eventually available to everybody. You know, we, we've known that um, for a yeah. long time, but or for some time now they, they've been doing that. But I think in this live sort of everybody's talking and interacting with one another, largely using Twitter, to be honest, as a medium, you know, to share clips of, and you notice that there's tons of clips yeah. of, of presentations now, whereas there used to be sort of like a chilling effect yeah. on that. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, don't share a lot of yeah, these, please. Yeah. You know, that was like the general gist. Um, uh, don't share video recordings of the presentations. Well, they don't. There's a ton on Twitter now. And I think they're really cool. A lot of them show off really neat features. And a lot of the discussion around them, if you look at them, there's a very diverse set of developers having, you know, taking part in this sort of live discovery of these features and conversations about them that they just don't get if they watch the video a week or two later and all of the initial chatter about them has maybe died down or whatever. I just think that there's a very interesting thing that happened here that would never have happened because of the in-person scenario is largely lottery-based, which doesn't sort of allow for any... um intentionality in the mix, right? Um, Whereas this is just the opposite of that, where it's everybody. So you, by nature, you're going to get a more inclusive environment. And I thought that was really cool. Um, You know, I've certainly, for a long time, I've wished, even as I attended the shows, it's like, man, you know, I wish this this group was more um, inclusive across the board because it frankly gets boring when it's the same people, you know? Um, So... 
And there that, is that was there, cool. there, there, there's a simple cost. There's a simple sure. cost factor too, yeah. right? I mean, above and beyond the lottery and, and getting lucky to go is that airfare and a hotel mm-hmm. or a Airbnb or whatever. You know, just putting a roof over your head and eating and getting around. Yeah, and a lot of developers are going to self-select out of that because they're like, "Hey, and I got a family, I got a job, and I got right. all this stuff." So right. it opens it up to them too. Yeah. Right. And it's a you know just the schedule is a factor on the student yeah. landscape where there's an awful lot of students who maybe could go, would go, would try to go even though it's limited space and can't because they're taking final exams in the second week of June or something like that. You know, it's especially like high school mm-hmm. type students. I know college is usually done by June, but but a lot of yeah. high schools are still going. Um, and now they're they're full fledged. You know, a seventeen year old teenage developer is on equal footing for consuming WWDC with the, you know, middle-aged professional who's been going for 15, 20 years. It's, it is absolutely mm-hmm. diversifying in, in several senses yeah. of the word. I also think it's really interesting, very Apple, not surprising to me, but definitely surprised some people in that Apple used this as an opportunity to up their production values, not lower their production values. Oh, it's coronavirus time. People mm-hmm. are in quarantine. You know, our presentations won't be as polished. The, pre- the average presentation level, you know, production quality wise is way up. That to me is the thing that seems hard. Like, I don't think Apple's con- as concerned about the cost of putting on the massive convention. Cause again, I don't know if you know this, but Apple has a fair <laughs> amount of money. I was aware. I was aware. <laughs> and again, again, I'm not the one writing mm. the check. Um, you know, but I, you know, I, I know how much less I paid to produce my mm-hmm. show this year by not <laughs> renting you. out yeah. the California mm-hmm. theater for one night. <laughs> and it's a yeah. lot of zeros by I my know. standards. Um, but I, I just think that the one thing about this year's show that to me would would make Apple's catch Apple's institutional eye as to hmm this would be hard to go back on is production quality. Production quality is it defines Apple in every mm-hmm. way, right? Like they 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 make the nicest watch bands, right? You know what I mean? They're their videos are supposed to be high production quality. You know, the keynote had was high production value quality from start to finish and was mm-hmm. fascinating. Did you notice, by the um, way, the safety disclosures at the end? Did you watch it? I thought that was yes, really cool. Yes, I, I'm going to totally steal that. So if anybody from yep. Apple listens to this, I'm yanking yep. it. But um, we, you know, we're doing our virtual events this year, and it, it was something it was inspiring yep. to us to see, like, hey, because we are we're going through all the yep. same planning. You know, we want to make sure that we pull off our events safely, yep. even though they're virtual. There will be contact among yep. production members, and we yep. want to make sure that's handled carefully. Yep. Well, I thought that was a really cool touch. Right. And I just, I, I really do, in a way that it, it just seems like they can, they can deliver a production quality of these session videos when they're delivered personally and staged entirely in a way that is only meant to be delivered on video that simply cannot be done for something delivered on stage to an audience of a few hundred people in a room. And I don't know how they, I don't know how they go back on that. So I I don't know. I don't know what they do. It also doesn't make sense to just have a 5,000 person keynote and then say, okay, the rest of the week is virtual. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the exact path forward is, but I don't think a hybrid approach is out of the question yeah. for sure. 
Yeah. Um, what did you think? I, I wasn't sure, I guess, if I was something I, – I, I wasn't I, – I hadn't rewatched the keynote yet when I did my interview with Jaws and, and Federighi. And then I rewatched part of it. And I kind of think parts of it weren't real. I think that there was, you know, there were special effects in there. Like, I'm not entirely sure Craig Federighi was in the Steve Jobs Theater for everything where it looked like he was in the atrium, you know, and I'm not even sure that the screen behind him was real. It was, it's, it, but it was convincing if it wasn't real. And if it was real, it was done in a way that was so polished that it almost didn't look real. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could, it could have been just been touch up. You know, visual touch-up right. that kind of gave it that look. Um, certainly, right. it they chose a look for it that um, I guess you would call like new Apple video. You know, it's certainly a little bit overexposed, um, a little bit yeah. more contrast, you know, uh, graded that way. Um, although it would be fun to like in uh, <laughs> it, maybe engage somebody in, who does visual work to kind of run right. a – run down a <laughs> an examination of the keynote and be like, oh, they definitely did this here, that there, you know. Um, yeah. We know, we know well, some I, people who might be down for that. I was talking to my friend Adam Lisagor at Sandwich Video because they did the editing for my oh, yeah, show. Yeah. And, and we were so busy with my show that we didn't really have a lot of time. He was just like, I was like, what do you think? And he was like, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> it was, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think, I think it was a success. I really do. I think it was yeah. compelling. I think it was Apple-y. I think it was on brand and in, for Apple and engaging for people who watched and very enjoyable. Um and I just don't know where the line stopped between real drone shots of Apple Park and what was virtual. I mean, it, you know, it all to their credit where the special effects were like, I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm pretty sure a camera didn't really pass through the ceiling, but it sure looked like it did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little, little Hitchcock situation going on there. Um, yeah. yeah, the, I think they definitely used an FP, FPV drone for some of it which is a trend I've been following more. You're going to see this more and more. I think you're going to even see it in action films. There's already been some action films that have used drones, but specifically racing drones, which is mm-hmm. you know these drones that are capable of these incredibly tight turns, indoor to outdoor transitions, moving through you know super small spaces and all of this stuff. But you could tell it was also combined with some crane work and some visual effects for sure. Yeah. But I thought it was yeah. pretty pretty nicely done and given that they pulled it together in essentially a couple of months. Yeah, yeah. Like at least you know, I don't know when the hey maybe really occurred to the WWDC planning crew, but certainly, you know, March you know, mm-hmm. it, stuff got real, but I think even you'd be if correct they, to assume it'd be in March sometime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that's a lot to pull together. It would have been an impressive thing if they had decided a year ago that this was going to be entirely virtual. I think for something that they pulled together, you know, in, in three months was really, really hats off, you know, and budget be damned. Mm-hmm. It's just hard to do in a compressed period of time, no matter what your budget. Yeah. So it's sometime, right. At some point, the money is not really the factor at all. It's like, can, can you pull it off in that group of time? And remember too, that it's not just the keynote and the splashiness of that. And then presenting stuff online. A lot of those things they had already had in place, you know, obviously the new developer yeah. portals and updates to all of that stuff was in place, but it's also all of the sessions with everybody that they would normally do on stage, you know, recording all of those yep. individually. I yep. love that everybody had their individual desk pets. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, I did too. They got to I pick their too. own desk pets. It seems like, yeah, um, which was fun. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Yes, wish sir. I w- wish I would have seen you this week. It seems weird that I haven't. Yeah. But, uh, someday. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do miss having some questionable uh, cuisine and pretty decent <laughs> beers. <laughs> Lots of fried foods. WWDC week. Should we should we eat half of our body weight in prime rib? Sure, why not? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah, it's not even. It's not even. Yeah, I know. I I was wondering why I didn't have the meat sweats. I was like, something's missing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good talking to you. All All right. right. Well, we'll we'll toast to the house of prime rib next year, hopefully.